This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Cricket. Cricket makes perfect, classic, and easygoing polo shirts. For 20% off your first purchase, go to cricketshirts.com fool and use the promo code fool. That's C-R-I-Q-U-E-T shirts.com fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. How are you, bro? I'm just groovy. How are you, Allison? I'm good because it's uh, almost Halloween. And so that means we're going to have a very special spooky episode of Motley Fool Answers. This week, we're enlisting the help of a very special guest to teach us spells from the Witch of Wall Street, one of the wealthiest women to ever haunt Wall Street. <laughs> She didn't really haunt it. Anyway, whatever. Spoiler. We'll, we'll get into it. Anyway, all that and more on this week's episode of Molly Full Answers. It's time for Answers Answers. Andy writes, in a couple of years, I will be 62 and my youngest child will be 13. If I then apply for Social Security, both my son and my wife can collect Social Security as well. My calculations tell me that I would have collected about $340,000 extra by the time I reach full retirement age. It seems to me collecting a large sum up front hedges against Social Security not remaining viable through the end of my life. What do you think? I would also like to find a Social Security expert. How do I find one? Well, Andy, you make a very good point, and that is once you claim Social Security benefits, you then make other dependents eligible eligible to claim their benefits. And some people might find this surprising, but if you claim your Social Security benefits and you have a kid who's 18 or younger, they get Social Security. So, if you made or had a kid in any other fashion, you know, late 40s, early 50s, it is something to consider. Um, but you also have to factor in the fundamental principle of Social Security, and that is the sooner you take it, the less you'll get forever. Um, and that applies to your own benefits as well as, in some cases, the spousal benefit, which is what your spouse would get if, over your lifetime, you earned considerably more money than your spouse did. You uh, included a figure in your question here, Andy, of $340,000. I have court can't answer whether that's accurate or not. But what I do think everyone should do whenever they're making these types of decisions is to actually use some sort of Social Security planning calculator. You can start at the Social Security website. They have lots of benefits calculators as well. But there's some free services out there that will look at your actual numbers and tell you, okay, based on everything that you said about your situation, your age, your spouse's age, potential benefits, this is what we think you should do. And they'll put your, your various trade-offs in dollar terms. So they'll say, if you claim at this point, you'll get this much money over your lifetime. If you wait, you'll get this much. And I think it is easier to make that decision when you see the actual numbers. So what are a couple of options for you? Well, a Social Security website does have some good calculators. There's one tool called SS Analyze, offered by Bedrock Capital Management. Financial Engines also has a free tool you can put in your information. If you're willing to spend a little bit of money, $40, I recommend people consider MaximizeMySocialSecurity.com, which is a little more high-powered but it's worth the extra money to use the software to analyze your situation. If you don't want to do it on your own, uh, I think it is smart to hire a financial planner who can do this for you. What you have to do is find a financial planner who, first of all, is an expert and is willing to work on a project basis. The typical financial advisor is only going to take on a client if they can manage their money. You don't want to do that. You want to find someone who will just help you answer this one single question. You're more likely to find that 
with a fee-only planner who charges on an hourly on an hourly basis. You can find those types of folks from the Garrett Planning Network or NAPFA. We have a new sponsor. This is so great. Cricut makes comfortable shirts that combine old school style with modern design. These shirts look sharp while being super comfy. It can take you from your job at your cool startup to the golf course to beers afterwards. It's kind of like the little black dress for the modern man. <laughs> Details actually calls it the perfect polo. Bro, you got to try one on. What'd you think? I liked it. Of course, the ultimate arbiter of such things is my wife. And? And. So I just put it on and was getting ready to go out, and she just said, "Where'd you get that shirt?" In a good way, though. In a good way. <laughs> so, uh, so it passes the Mrs. Bro seal of approval. As a special offer to our listeners, you can get twenty percent off your first purchase by going to cricketshirts.com/fool and using the promo code fool. That's cricket spelled not the way you're thinking. It's spelled C R I Q U E T. So, cricketshirts.com slash fool, promo code fool. Got a black magic woman. Got a black magic woman. Halloween is lurking around the corner, and so it's a perfect time to examine the life of Hetty Green, the Witch of Wall Street. Uh, she's also been more favorably called the Warren Buffett of her time. So, today <laughs> we have the most special of guests to help us. And that is Teresa O'Neill. She's the eventual best-selling author of Unmentionable, The Victorian <laughs> Lady's Guide to Sex, Marriage, and Manners, which is out today by Little Brown and Company. More importantly, she's my best friend since high school. Hi, Teresa. Hi, dear. <laughs> hi, hi, Robert. Hi, Teresa. Well, welcome to the show. So, Teresa is actually calling in from Oregon, where she lives. Um, she's a writer, and she specializes in uncovering forgotten and obscure history. And today, she's going to help us learn some of Hetty's best spells for making money. First, I've got a primer on Hetty, really brief here. She was born in 1834, and she parlayed a pretty decent inheritance into a huge fortune. And she became arguably the wealthiest woman of the industrial age. She was worth about 4.3. $36 billion in current dollars. Uh, so, why was she called the Witch of Wall Street and what spells did she use to amass so much money? All right, are we ready for spell number one? We're ready. And thanks for letting me go with this format because I realize it's a little goofy. <laughs> so, the first spell is one to bend the rules and the spell is Bendiculus Rulicus. It's Halloween. We can be a little corny. So, you feel better now? I do. But we're just <laughs> getting started. I do. I feel okay. <laughs> Okay. All right. Tell me well, about Hetty and how she liked to bend the rules. First of all, it would be more a case of bending space and time. So your spell would have to do that. Because I don't think Hetty could have been Hetty if it hadn't been the era she was born into. Um, all the major, this is interesting, all the big, uh, well, you can either call them robber barons or captains of industry, of the 19th century, like Rockefeller, Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, they were all born in the 1830s, and they all came of the age when the world was like so ripe for them to come, because petroleum was starting to matter, railroads were being built, all this stuff that you know, and there were no laws against monopolies, or and it was really easy to avoid taxes, and she took advantage of all of this. They all did. They all did. And basically, the the way to make money was outpacing the laws to keep it in check. <laughs> so that's why we have Rockefeller Center and all this stuff. Now, Hetty wasn't a um, monopolizer. She was a financier. And by the way, Robert, Robert, what's the difference between a financier and a, a usurer? 
I, I would say it's just the it's just the interest rate itself. If you are <laughs> if you are lending money in what is considered a fair rate, you're just being a banker or a lender or a financier. If you're charging exceptionally high rates, then you would be considered because you can. Yes, because you can. Oh, some people some people might throw totally credit. What she did. That's, right. That's some people, totally what she yeah, did. like credit cards. Some people might consider credit cards getting getting into that territory. Anyway, so the rules weren't in place, and she wasn't the only one that bended them. The banks bended. I have a great story about how the banks really screwed her over, and of course she got them back. But she did get married at a late age, at 33. She waited around for a long time for a guy who didn't, she didn't think was a gold digger um, because she had a small family fortune. Started from the somebody who came over on the Mayflower, bought a black cow, and eventually, by the time it got to her, it was six million dollars. <laughs> wow, that's a big cow. Yeah, well, in nice their cow. money, and then, she, well, she made it into more like, like you said, three billion. So, they did okay for a while. They had two kids, but um, they still had that practice in the old days where, even though she went and had a prenup done, which was unheard of back then, and even though she went and demanded that her finances always be kept separate from her husband's. They used the same bank. Now for the same thing, Teddy kept her securities at the bank. It was called the Cisco Bank. And her husband invested at the bank, but Teddy didn't invest. So what the bank did was, um, uh, it was a slump. It was starting to collapse. It was called the Cisco Bank. People were drying out their monies, and there was a run. But Hetty was the largest investor. She had over 500 grand in their bank. Problem was, her husband, Edward, was the largest debtor with over seven hundred grand debt to the bank. I understand why they kept giving him money, but I think it's because they thought Hetty's fortune was there to cover it. But Hetty didn't believe that at all. And when she tried to withdraw her bank, they said if you do that, everybody's gonna lose their money and it would be awfully sporting of you <laughs> to cover your husband's debt to us. Come on, and be a good said, gal. And she she showed, she took a train down, which she never did because she didn't like to spend money, and she marched into the bank, and she stomped her feet, and she burst into tears, and she screamed, and she threatened, and the guy who was running the place at the time just sat there and watched her and wouldn't get excited and wouldn't let her have her securities or her cash deposit until she wrote out a check hmm. that covered that covered everything that was owed by her husband. And as you can imagine, within a week, her husband no longer lived at their home. <laughs> she kicked him, they stayed married, but she kicked him out from then on because, and never again did she let anybody mm, put her money with a man's, with her husband's, and which was unheard of. But that was one thing she did to bend the rules, was she just didn't give a darn what you thought of her. And people thought terrible things about her. <laughs> from what, from the reading I did, the other interesting thing that she did was she went to Great Lakes to avoid taxes. Back then, the U.S. did not oh, have yeah. a formal income tax. That didn't come until the 16th Amendment, which was passed in 1913. She had five separate residences and five separate mm, districts, I think they were taxed in districts. And she constantly moved between them until the end of her life, where she was so paranoid that uh, somebody was going to kidnap her or kill her that she just lived in like cold water flat hotels with her poor son being dragged behind her who was a grown man 
and that's a whole other story, a whole other spell. <laughs> it is. <laughs> From what I what I read back when there were the debates about imposing this national income tax, she was using it as an example of why we needed one. She was used in political cartoons. She was used in speeches as an example of someone who has a lot of money but isn't paying her fair share. Oh, she sure wasn't. She would do anything to get out of paying money. But we'll get to that. Our next spell is a spell to help you become a vulture without a conscious. Factus Vulturis. She had a really good sense for foreseeing crashes and things that were going to go down. And when they did, she always had a stock of money set aside somewhere just solely for buying up other people's poverty and misery and making it her own. She would then sell back to them at incredibly jacked up prices. I wonder how she always knew they'd go back up, because they always did. It yeah. sounds to me anyway. like she is she is a type of person who kind of went around paranoid. It reminds me of a, a phrase by Andrew Grove, who was the, <laughs> one of the founders of Intel, which was, only the paranoid survive. And someone like oh her, my. she was worried, like you said, she was always worried about being kidnapped, and she kept a lot of cash on hand. But that can actually work out all right, because when everyone else is panicking, you have the cash to buy up the assets. Her thing was patience. She was never a value investor. She only bought things if she was absolutely sure she could turn it around, which is why she was really big in real estate. Again, this was partially because um, of the era she was in. She said, uh, somebody asked her, if a woman has an extra couple hundred dollars, what should she do with it? And she said, because she got chatty toward the end of her life, and she said, real estate, always real estate. Just look in the direction your town is going and buy a field and wait, which, again, in the late 1800s was happening all over the country, but only a couple dips, as far as I know, in real estate. So that was, again, the time and place that helped her become Teddy the Witch. The next spell is how to become a unique and maybe a little dirty snowflake. Specialis Sordida Snowflake. <laughs> snowflake Latin? I didn't know I that. Tried, I stuck <laughs> it into Google Translate and it just kept giving me back snowflake, which I have a hard time believing they didn't have a word for snowflake in Latin, but well, what do I know? Probably doesn't snow in Italy very much. That's probably anyway. true. Um, basically, this one I'd say she was nobody was like her. There were no women investors. She embraced that oddness. She was not above bursting into tears and stomping her feet if she thought it would work. The reason she was the way she was, I'll tell you about her childhood. And again, we're shoehorning a bit here, but it all connects. Uh, her mother was too fragile to take care of her, so she spent a great deal of time with her grandfather and her father. And they were whale shipmen. They made their fortune off of whale oil. And she spent her childhood on the docks, walking around with the sailors, you know, learning how to be tough and angry. And <laughs> the only love she got was when she, her, her dad and her grandfather, their eyesight was failing. So she would read them the stock reports every day. The only time her dad was really patient and kind with, with her was when he would explain, you know, any questions she asked about money or stocks or anything, he would explain very carefully, patiently. So uh, right there, that mental switch was thrown, money equals love and goodness. And and then she started going kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> she, was, she embraced being infamous and she didn't care what people thought of her. When they talked bad about her, she'd say, they don't know me, I'm a Quaker, that's why I do things differently, and, and stuff like that. 
and they love to talk bad about her. To an unfair point, which I'll cover later, probably. Let's move on to our fourth spell that she would use, and that is the spell that enables you to sue everybody. Sue Omnibus! One of those is Latin. I I can't imagine this would be cost-effective nowadays, but she sued everyone all the time. Anyone who crossed her, anyone who demanded payment, she thought she could weasel out of pain. Lawyers would, her lawyers would have to hire lawyers to get their money back from her. (laughs) But the best lawsuit is the first one. There's a shortage of heirs in this family. She came from the family called Howland. After her father died, her mother died, she had a maiden aunt named Sylvia. And Sylvia was, had a spinal deformation and she was, you know, housebound. And she had a lot of money and she used it on servants, just gobs of them. And they were paid friends and paid love, but they're all she had. And it was under their influence that she wrote her first will. And it was um, generous. It was, you know, she had like a hundred million dollars. It was like charities and of course providing for all her servants very well and all this stuff and that made Hetty livid you know and not not from greed not from like I want those things to buy myself a fancy house it was just that's money that's our money that's my money she was a hoarder like on the show but instead of cat poop it was money (laughs) she had to keep her, her money so what she did she she went to her aunt's house like every all the time for like three years, just making her life miserable, badgering her and and trying to reason with her and, and browbeating her until she got her aunt to make a will saying that all money would go to Hetty. And everybody hated Hetty in that house. And Hetty was still a young woman at this point, about 20, 28, I think. So she went, as soon as she left, Sylvia and her servants did another will, again, like the old one which was, you know, still left Hetty money, but not all of it. And when she died and Hetty found that out, she was very, very mad. So what she did, first she contested the will. And her key piece of evidence was that she went to Aunt Sylvia's house and a lot of witnesses went with her. And she said, I'm going to look around in the trunk upstairs. I think there's something that might help us here. And she went upstairs and she rummaged around in the trunk and she found the original will that she had made her aunt sign. And appended to it was a brand new fresh piece of paper that said, no other will after this one counts. All money <laughs> needs to go to my niece. It, it was ham-fisted. It was I really mean it, was, it this time. I'm very serious. <laughs> I will haunt you I from want, the grave if Hetty does not get all the money. That was her mentality that this would work. And she forged the signature um, very well. They called him like 10 different handwriting animals, but it was obviously traced over pencil. And uh, it didn't work, but she kept things tied up so long in court that by the end, only the lawyers actually got any money. It was, it was, she was just a spiteful woman when it came to money. We should declare at this point, she was already rich. She didn't need that money. By the end of it, she had $6 million, um, which was not enough for her because she, I think, was kind of mentally ill. But you know what? Have you guys ever read the studies that like people who are sociopaths make the best businessmen? Well, we we ever- talk we talk a fair amount about on the show about how your ability in investing and how successful you'll be in investing has a lot to do with how you can control your emotions and staying rational when other people are flipping out. So um, we talk about that and a little not- bit. 
Yes, and, and not caring if other people get screwed royally. Now, yeah, probably. That's yeah, maybe there's, there's that. Fire. Not yeah. caring what other people think about you. I just found an article on Payscale.com with the, with the title, Why a Disproportionate Number of CEOs are Psychopaths. So, uh, you know, we're on to something here. <laughs> <laughs> Sociopaths now. Unless they murder people, they're not, not really psychopaths. They might even just be high-grade narcissists. You never, but it really helps in business, from what I've read. Um, but it makes you an absolute tanker socially. The next and final spell is a spell to help you take stingy to crazy new levels, and that spell is insanus stingyitis. Wait, I should say that with more well, bravado. Insanus stingyitis. Nah, it doesn't make it any better, does it? <laughs> anyway, uh, so so like. Toward the end of the, their lives, all the other titans of the this era, they started endowing all these colleges and, and museums and philanthropy, you know, Carnegie Hall, whatever, whatever. Hetty did nothing like that. She did not give a dime to charity, at least as far as we know. She claimed it was because she had no social secret, secretary to, to brag about her when she did nice things. But um, she only employed like three people and they all said no, she never gave a dime to charity ever. And she paid them like $7 a week. And they, uh, she's just horrible. Anyway. <laughs> but the, the, the greatest um, story of her stinginess uh, involves her son, Ned. Um, he was a big boy, tall and, and heavy. And uh, the sources differ about how his leg got hurt, a sledding accident, born that way, or hit by a, a dog cart when he was a kid. But um, she was afraid of being charged millionaire prices because she was becoming recognizable. So she took her son to the charity hospital and took advantage of the doctors that worked there for free. And when she was recognized, she was asked to leave. And so she went straight to the good hospital and got treatment for her son. No, she did not. <laughs> she took him home and did a lot of um, uh, Carter's little liver pills. I have some of those in my collection. They're nothing. They're, they're vegetable oil. <laughs> she gave him that. She did a lot of home treatment. So the leg kept getting worse and worse and worse. And the story goes, and again, there's a lot of, there's a remarkable, of the books I read about Hetty, a remarkable a lot of first-hand accounts of uh, conversations that just doesn't seem likely, but who knows. Uh, Ned's leg got so bad that he fell down a flight of stairs while he was visiting his father's house, as they no longer lived together, and Edward realized how bad the injury was. So he, the leg had to be amputated, and even though Ned's father didn't have hardly any money anymore, he just flat out paid for it because it was easier than having to haggle with Hetty for the safety of her son. Now, that, that's got to be dramatized a little bit. I mean, you get a little bit of credit because she did love Ned. She was grooming him to take over her empire, although I don't think she knew she could die. She was a little crazy. <laughs> and there were stories like... Um, oh, tell oh, the God. hernia one. <clears throat> the hernia one. Oh, yeah, she uh, had this bulging hernia for 20 years in her gut. You know, the side of her stomach wall just spilled out over her whatever else is there. Britches. I don't know. And Yeah. You've got the book, don't you? They didn't wear britches. It's pantalettes, bloomers, anything. They didn't wear britches. I did read the book. It was don't great. Don't waste my time, Allison. All right, sorry. Um, <laughs> so, there, so there's her hernia spilling forth. Anyway, so she goes, 
so the doctor apparently told the story, which was really professional of him, in great detail. That he, she came into his office. He was a real doctor. And she disrobed and she had yellow, disgusting underwear. And he found that she had been keeping the bulging hernia in place with a stick that she had jammed between the hem of her undergarments and the, the flesh of her hernia. Ew. 20 years. <laughs> Ew. And he said, I can fix this for surgery. You need one pretty bad. He said, it'll be $150, which I don't know what that was in that time, but it seems reasonable. And she said, robbers, you're all a bunch of robbers. Put her stick back and walked out. <laughs> That's the last of it. So she, at least her selfishness applied to herself, too. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. But she would, she'd show up to court and tattered rags and claim poverty, and I don't know how she got away with it, but she would. Oh, she also believed that she had to take um, varied routes to work. Um, and by the way, her work was whatever bank she chose to set up shopping, she demanded a free office and, of course, got it. And she would take various routes and she'd, you know, bob and weave, trying to keep, she would sleep with a gun, like, tied to her finger <laughs> so she could pull the trick. She would, at a time, had her grown children sleeping on the floor beneath her, her bed in the cold water flat. And, again, she was a billionaire. But money was not for spending. It was for making more money. She had no shame. She had no pride except in money. And she was really good at it. It was mostly just by being, I think, a conservative investor. What does it mean that Hetty never bought on margin? So um, buying on margin means borrowing money to buy stocks. So let's say you're, you're going to buy $1,000 worth of a railroad stock. You could hand over $1,000 in cash and buy that stock, or... You could hand over just a hundred dollars and then borrow all the rest. Um, so that's trickier because if that stock goes down, then you're going to owe a lot of money. Uh, and it was particularly important back then because there were no regulations really about margin, and it caused wide swings in the stock market, even more than what we see today. One of it was actually one of the big reasons for the crash of 1907, which. Uh, Caused. She foresaw and avoided, by the way. Yes, she did. And then in the end, she, along with people like J.P. Morgan, had to lend money to New York and New York City just to keep them afloat. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. It's amazing. Um, and I'm sure she did it with incredible interest rate markup. Or Look at me. I'm trying to sound like I know what money is. <laughs> <laughs> well, because back then there was no Federal Reserve or anything to inject money into the um, into the system. In fact, it was the, the crash of 1907 that was really the, the final big crash before the country decided to have a Federal Reserve system, what, which happened in 1913. It? What caused the crash? The crash it was a lot of people buying um, stocks on margin, because when if you buy <laughs> stock on margin, you only own part of it, and then you owe the bank money. If that stock goes down, the bank says, oh. you either have to give us more money, or we're going to make you sell your stock. And if a lot of people have borrowed money, they don't have the money to pay the banks, the banks make them sell that stock, and you have all those people selling the stock, which makes the price go down, which then causes even more people to have to sell their stock. It's sort of a snowflake. One of the first things- Snowball. That's, snowball. That's, yes, snowball. that's the one. Yes. I was using the Latin word, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought um, it was interesting how, like you were saying, she hoarded all of her money, um, never gave to charity, never spent it on anything nice, and then when she died and gave it to her children, one of them spent it just flagrantly on yeah, all kinds of, of wild stuff. 
hated away Ned, her son. They called him Colonel Ned. He had the biggest yacht in the world constructed, but then found out he got seasick. So <laughs> oops, he could never use it. His home he later, later donated to MIT to work with because he was interested in radios. And he was interested in a lot of things. But he was just enjoyed being the big man on town with his cork leg. His leg was made of cork because it had been cut off. And I think he was very much in love with the prostitute. Uh, yeah, they stayed there a long time. He had a stable of what he called his ingenues, which, uh, you know, swear they didn't do anything funny, but there were beautiful young women he wanted to go spin golly on and turn into ladies and whatever. Didn't usually work. And even though he spent every cent for, you know, just failed investments left and right and spin, 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 there was still like $100 million when he died to go to his sister, Sylvia, Jr. And she was more like her mother. Well, no, she wasn't. She was very introverted. She managed to get married. When Sylvia, the junior, died, that's the book I, I first found out about Hetty. It's called The Day They Shook the Plum Tree. And that was the day that they shook the plum tree, that all the money that she'd hoarded, Sylvia gave to only the charity. But not just charity. She gave it to, like, housewives that had been once been kind to her 20 years ago. Oh. You know, they get a check for $10,000 in 1953. And, you know, and all these orphans and hospitals, she did right by it. And her mother would have been turning over in her grave if she wasn't already so deep in hell. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you you do so, believe she was worthy of the name the Witch of Wall Street? Well, okay, two things. She was crazy. She, I think she was mentally ill. You know, and it just happened to be in a way that makes her really rich. But it was so detrimental. I mean, she, you know, her her family, she, everybody, she was miserable. That's one thing. But the other thing is, she was also the only woman doing this. And I, I, they had to make kind of a spectacle of her, uh, a myth, uh, entertainment, because uh, how else to explain how she could do the things she did? She had to be special. I don't know if this if she would have been newsworthy if she'd been a man. I mean, she was an she was an incredible spectacle. She was a circus sideshow attraction. She would, I mean, and her and her idiosyncrasies made it more interesting. You know, she only took public transportation, and you know, the owner at the bank she'd arrive at say, "Why didn't you take a carriage?" And she'd say, "Well, I guess you can afford a carriage. I certainly can." <laughs> She's a billionaire. <laughs> and she would only bring dry oatmeal, like, in her briefcase to work, to eat, and, and just, she wasn't all there. She wasn't all there. But if she'd been a guy doing this, I don't think she'd be in the history books. What do you think? You think being a woman made a difference in her, her legacy? Being a witch? Or was she honestly just a psycho? <laughs> horrible person who never gave to charity, let her son's leg die, uh, mentally abused her children, kicked her husband out, <laughs> wouldn't cover his loans. Wait, never mind. The answer is for me. <laughs> <laughs> She's maybe not the nicest person in the world. Maybe we, we can at least say that much. All these stories can be exaggerated. Yeah, I mean, they're they're fantastic stories. And if you look at a, like an image, a picture of her, she looks she like a looks witch. Like a I witch. Mean, she dressed in long black She's dark a clothes. Quaker. Yeah, she dressed like a Quaker. Well, she looks like in all the pictures. She looks too. like Queen Victoria at a funeral. 
Like she's just wearing yeah. all black, head to toe, covered in black, and kind of. Supposedly, she was quite she the looker said, when she was young, but I never saw a picture. Took, when she, uh, I've been looking for one too. She's supposed to be kind of pretty. Um, uh, she, when she took her skirts to the cleaner, she told them to only wash the bottom foot because that's the only part that got dirty. Which is not true. Not true. Not true. That's not where your butt is. And, all that. <laughs> and remember, underwear didn't have a crotch back then, which you would know if you read my book, Unmentionable. Which is it, true. It didn't have a. I don't. I don't. I don't even want to think about the logistics oh, of that. Oh, Robert, you don't know. No, no I'll buy like you. I'll buy point. you a copy of Teresa's book so you can learn all about it. Because it is a great book. I didn't no just crashes. have you. I didn't just have you on the show because um, I love you and I've known you forever. But also, it is a really great book, uh, and I appreciate you coming and sharing with us today the story You're, of Hetty as well. Are you wrapping up on me? I'm wrapping up on you. I have things to tell your audience about who you were when you were 20. Yeah, so Teresa's book is, again, The Victoria's Lady's Guide (laughs) to Sex, Marriage, and Manners. It is out today. It's such a lucky coincidence. And the book, again, is called Unmentionable, The Victorian Lady's Guide to Sex, Marriage, and Manners by Teresa O'Neill best friend of Allison Southwick. Go by If anyone you know loves to romanticize the past and read, I don't know, what what kind of, like I don't know, what's a good example of the kind of book? Jane Eyre, Scarlett O'Hara, Jane Austen, whatever it is, I implode it. I yes. don't mean to, I don't want to, but I, somebody has to. It's yeah. time. And I literally, so, yeah. I literally laughed out loud. I don't often laugh out loud when I'm reading books, but I laughed out loud constantly while I was reading your book. It was, it's so funny. It's so great. You're, you're, you like cast my sense of humor <laughs> so of course you did <laughs> I'm telling you jokes that you told me 10 years ago yeah you laughed of course you did but thank you it is funny I do say so myself. it's such a great good book everyone go buy it thank you so much for having me dear and Robert it was really great to meet you to your audience please forgive my glaring ignorance of all things financial which I try to make up with the knowledge about oh, underwear Underwear, yes, it's true, it's underwear, but it's really interesting. It's really interesting. The universe, the world, the history of underwear relates to everything else as much as money does. I swear it does. I swear it does. You can read the book and find out why. Yep, it is. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In closing, Robert. I've said this before and I'll say it again. We have the best listeners. We do. So this last week, we missed a visit from listeners, Pam and Jim. They were in town from Colorado, which is sad, but they left behind a huge stack of amazing chocolate. (laughs) And then, and then, a few hours later, a big envelope arrived from John in Seattle, who must be a graphic designer because he sent us a gorgeous print he made of the word Stay Foolish. And amidst all this love, I teared up just a little. I did. Because that's what I do. So, thanks to everyone who says thank you to us. Um, You're encouraged is really appreciated and honestly does keep us going. It's true. Okay, that's the show. Our email is answers at fool.com. The show is edited hauntingly by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish.